what I'd like to do uh, during the sermon today is to take some time and to help us develop a, a more fuller, a deeper, or a more nuanced understanding of this relationship that communion reminds us we've entered into. Uh, one of the most common metaphors that the New Testament uses to talk about the, the Christian life or the relationship that Christian has to Jesus, that the church has to Jesus, is the phrase, Bride of Christ. And so today what I'd like to do before we receive communion is unpack a little bit, maybe help you gain a fuller understanding of, of this imagery. And, and so we're going to do that as we continue through our series uh, through the book Song of Solomon. We've been saying about Song of Solomon that, uh, that this is a book composed of uh, love poems, poems written from a, a lover to his beloved, or, or maybe in, in, in modern uh, parlance we would say that these are love notes that the lovers exchanged throughout their relationships. And so that, since that's kind of what the book is, these, these love notes back and forth to one another, um, we have a sense that at some point in the book, they're married, but, but we don't get an actual description of the wedding ceremony itself. It's actually about chapter four, as you read through Song of Solomon, you begin to notice that something shifts, and, uh, and, and so it's around chapter four that there's a marriage ceremony that happens. So uh, we don't get a we don't get a play by play of that ceremony. We know what wedding ceremonies look like today, but um, we can't really assume that that's what theirs would have looked like. So what what I'm going to do today is give us kind of a glimpse or a peek into a Jewish wedding ceremony. Now, in order to do that, I'm going to need some help, um, and so I'm going to recruit a few people uh, from the pews here to help me. And uh, in order to have a wedding ceremony, you must first have. A groom. You, have, you must have a groom. Jeff. Jeff Myers, do you, would you like to be our groom today? All right. Now, there's a reason I chose Jeff. Um, um, for one thing, he's shorter than me. And so, uh, so there'll be no problems with that. I'm going to have you go ahead and put on a, a groom tag. And then uh, we're going to need a couple of groomsmen. Would you like to pick those? Or would you like me to pick those guys? I can pick them. Okay. So just stand up front here in front of the steps. But there's a, there's a specific reason I chose Jeff. You see, for... Um, in, in Jewish custom, and not just Jewish, but, but we're talking about Jews, uh, a man would have uh, picked a bride or would have began to enter into the relationship somewhere in his 30s. That's about where you're at. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll say it is. Um, the idea was that the man wanted to be established before he uh, took a wife and began to, to raise a family. He wanted to make sure that he could support his, his bride and the children that were soon to come. And so often, um, and probably the case with Joseph, Jesus' father, uh, a man was well established in his trade before he ever took a wife. So we're going to need some groomsmen. Blake, I'm going to tap you on the shoulder. You get to be the best man. And um, you're not quite in your 30s, but it'll work. Tyler, can I tap you on the shoulder? Would that be right? You don't even have to talk. You just have to stand up there and look dashingly handsome. And that's no effort for you, so, so go for it. And then, uh, this isn't how we would think, but probably the, the next most important character in any Jewish wedding ceremony is actually the father of the groom. And so, Greg, I'm going to tap you on the shoulder. Um, you're going you're to be our father. Now, the reason I say that, that you're probably the second most important person, um, pardon me, women, uh, normally in our culture, the bride is the most important and the groom comes somewhere down the list and the groom's father barely makes the bulletin. Um, but in this culture, in the, in the Jewish culture, it's actually the father of the groom that picks the bride. Did you know that? 
We have this actually all throughout Scripture. If you think of the story of, of Isaac and Rebekah, it was Isaac's father who picked Rebekah for Isaac to marry. So sometimes the groom and the father would work together to do this, and, and, uh, and other times the, the father would do it on his own, as was the case with Rebekah. Would you like to pick today's bride? Okay, so I'm going to give you a bride thing here. And you're, now here's the thing. You're, you're looking on the wrong side probably. You probably want to look this side. And the, the reason for that is a typical Jewish bride would be somewhere between the ages of 12 and maybe 18 on the outer limits. And so you can, you can I mean, there might be some age over there, but um, you're going to want to pick a younger bride. And so the idea here was, and we've talked about this before when we talked about Mary, the mother of Jesus, that after a, a Jewish girl had her first menstrual period, menstrual cycle, um, she was ready to be a wife. And so it was at a very young age. Hey, come on, man. We don't have all day here. It was at a, it was at a very young age that a bride would be chosen. Oh, is he going for Michaela? Michaela. All right, good deal. Come on up. Now, Michaela, would you like to choose your bridesmaids or would you like me to do that for you? I can do it? All right, good deal. So need a couple bridesmaids. I'm going to go over to this side. Um, I think we have a couple of giggly girls back here who'd love to jump up front. There you go. And uh, if, if I pick you, are you still going to go home with me? All right, you'll do a great job. And then we just need one other person, and this would be the uh, father of the bride. And uh, Kevin Weaver, let's go with you. You're tall and hawking, and I think Jim will have a hard time. I mean, that, Jeff, Jeff will have a hard time asking for your daughter. Yeah, just put that on and, and come stand up here and look beautiful. All right, good deal. All right, so here we go. Let's see, we've got the... Uh, uh, Kevin, why don't you come over on the bride's side, since you're the father of the bride. And uh, so we've got the, the groom and his father. Father has picked out a bride. We've got some, we'd call them groomsmen. Uh, it it kind of works, a little bit anachronistic, but it'll work. And then we've got a couple of bridesmaids. You guys are going to be important. Actually, the, the New Testament refers to the friends of the bride as, as virgins. We'll get to that in a few minutes. And, um, and then we've got the father of the bride. Good deal. Now, so what we're going to do is show you kind of what a typical, why don't you come, um, yeah, why don't you guys come up here so people can see you. That'd be good. Some of, some of our um, more height challenged participants. And, and back up a little bit. I'm going to need some space here. That's good. Can we get more lights up here so we can see their faces? I think this will be, this is going to be fun. <laughs> we're going to get you two hitched today. All right. So um, when, when we talk about when we talk about Jewish weddings, there's kind of two components, two celebrations, if you will, in the process. The first is called a betrothal ceremony, um, but for, really for both ceremonies, um, they, they, they happen under what's called a chuppah. So I'm going to need the friends of the groom and the friends of the bride. Why don't you guys come here, and I'm uh, just going to have you kind of hold this up. You can probably each take one. Great. And then let's have our, um, yeah, let's, let's make sure it's nice and yeah, let's, let's spread it out as much as we can here. We, we, we need to make sure there's room. So would you please, not, you, not the father, the bride and the groom. Yes, great. So, so everything that happens in the betrothal ceremony and then the wedding ceremony, which we'll get to in a few minutes, happens under this chuppah. This is kind of a rough version. Original Jewish chuppahs were made from the, uh, the talit or the prayer shawl. Uh, and you've, if you've seen Orthodox Jews, you know that they still to this day wear a prayer shawl. It's actually instructed in Scripture that they're to wear a prayer shawl. 
highly symbolic, but, but what they did, the original hoopahs were um, put on poles, probably not PVC pipes, but um, put on poles and used as a hoopah. The Hebrew word hoopah means canopy or chamber. Chamber is in a place where someone dwells or where an activity happens. And, and we actually see this, this word or this idea throughout the Old Testament at key times. And so if you go way back to Genesis chapter 12, chapter 15, um, we see God make a covenant with Abraham under the canopy of the stars. And God makes a promise to fill everything under that canopy with Abraham's offspring. Uh, a little bit later in the, in the Old Testament, or uh, you know, as you move closer to the New Testament, um, you, you hear God instruct Moses to build a tabernacle. And inside that tabernacle, there's a place called the Holy of Holies, where God says he'll dwell, be his chamber to dwell among his people. And, and then we kind of see, a, a, uh, as, as we continue to move on, David and, and Solomon build a temple for God, and inside of that temple is a place called the Holy of Holies, the chamber where God resides and dwells. And, and as Solomon consecrates the temple to the Lord, and, and as Moses, as, as they have the tabernacle in the wilderness, we have a picture that the presence of God fills the Holy of Holies, and it's, it's, a, it's a great cloud, Scripture says, as God takes up residence in his chamber. There's also a prophecy um, in Isaiah. These are just, just a few examples. There's a prophecy in Isaiah that says, the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion, understand that's Jerusalem, and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Does that sound familiar? Any biblical history students here? How he led the people out of Egypt? Over all the glory will be a canopy, a hoopah. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. So this idea of a, of a, a canopy, a hoopah, or a chamber where something holy dwelt uh, comes into the wedding process here. Or in this case, the betrothal ceremony, the bride and the groom stand under this hoopah to, to symbolize a couple of things. First of all, that, that this relationship into which they are entering is a holy relationship, and God desires to dwell within it. And, and secondly, to indicate that this relationship, while itself holy, will serve to sanctify the couple. It will serve to make the couple more holy as they continue to live in this marriage. Now, when we talk about the uh, betrothal ceremony, there's, a, there's an element called the uh, ketubah. The, uh, the ketubah, this, by the way, is your ketubah, in case you wondered. Um, the ketubah, if you will, is a, um, a written agreement that the groom presents actually to the father of the bride. So, Kevin, why don't you come up here? Don't get out of the chuppah. That should be too weird. Um, but, but just come stand by Jeff, and he'd like to present this ketubah to you. And, and essentially what the ketubah does is it outlines... Um, it outlines the covenant or the, the guidelines of the relationship. And so it has things in it about, can you read that? Would you read that to us? <laughs> You're close. Uh, it outlines 
for both the prospective groom and bride what their relationship will look like until they consummate their marriage. It talks about remaining pure and, and strictly com- committed and devoted to one another. It, it discusses, this isn't our culture, but it, it certainly was theirs and many other cultures in history. It discusses what price the groom will pay the father for the bride. It's called a dowry. He's not purchasing her, but the idea is that he's reimbursing her father for the expenses he's had as he's raised and prepared this this daughter of his to be married by this groom. So this and some other things would be in the ketubah, but uh, the idea was this was the commitment, this was a covenant, and uh, the groom presents it first to the father, and if he approves, then the bride has um, final right of approval. Now, of course, this would have changed over history, but uh, at, its most, uh, at its most loving expression, the bride always had the final say. Um, she could, in a, in a proper Jewish home where they understood God's law about marriage, she could give a, a veto. She could say, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't believe that this is what I'd like to do. Um, so for the sake of our thing today, because this whole thing falls apart if you say no, um, <laughs> You're going to accept the, the terms of the ketubah. You can just take that and, and come back, and, and your job's done. Well, not completely done, but almost done. You did a good job. Great. Thank you. Um, and so, uh, so she's going to accept the terms. Now, in the, in the custom, in the betrothal ceremony, the next part, after the ketubah is accepted, the next part is what's called the kadush cup. Uh, the kadush cup. Kadush is a Hebrew word that means sanctified, holy, or set apart. And so the idea here, and again, this happened in different ways, but the idea here is that the groom, in one way or another, would present to the bride a sacred cup, this cup of sanctification, and if she would drink from it, then she accepts the terms and agrees to be his beloved, his betrothed, his wife-to-be. Now, I forgot my Kadush cup at home, so um, we're going to use this communion cup. So... Uh, <laughs> So, so um, there's a reason we're using the communion cup, but why don't you go ahead and take And by the way, it's interesting. In, in uh, some traditions, the, of course, this would all happen around the table, and Jews, Jews love feasts. Jews love feasts, and so often this would happen in the context of a meal. And, uh, and in some traditions, the cup, the kadush cup, would be upside down on the table, and if the bride wants to say yes, she turns it over and pours wine into it and drinks it, not encouraging that. Um, and in, in other traditions, uh, the groom would pour the wine if she says yes, she drinks it. But there's a reason that we're using one of our communion cups that, today, and that's because this, this cup of sanctification or this kadush cup shows up in the New Testament at a significant place. Any guesses as to where that might be? I mean, I, I'm practically handing it to you on a gold. At the Last Supper. You remember Jesus at the end of the supper he takes the cup and he says, this is the new covenant of my blood, which is given for you. And so the idea here is that when the bride drinks the cup, she's not just saying, yeah, I'll marry this dude. She's entering into a covenant. She's committing herself for life to this man. And although they're not yet husband and wife, they're not yet married, she's saying, until our wedding night and beyond it, my heart and my life and everything about me belongs to this man. It's, the Hebrew word is berit. She's entering into a berit, a covenant, that she will marry this man and be faithful to him for the rest of her days. So did you drink? You don't have an option for this. Yeah, sorry. 
So, um, so if she says yes, then the groom has a very specific line, and he says it exuberantly, boisterously, like he's really happy. She said yes. She said yes. Oh, sorry, dude, that's the wrong card. Um, <laughs> it's supposed to be this card. I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. Excellent. So when she accepts the covenant, then the groom says, I'm now going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. So you're going to take your father and your men here. We'll just, we'll just kind of gather the chuppah up. We're done with that for now. And you're going to take your father and men, and you're going to go, um, you're going to go prepare a place for your bride. And so here's the deal um, for today, what I'm going to ask you guys to do. Greg, you know what you're doing, right? Would you take these four guys and do that, please? Um, Here's how, it, here's how it actually worked. They would go back to the, the house. The, it's really more of a homestead, a small village in some cases, where the groom and, and the father of the groom lived. And the groom would begin to add on to his father's house. He wouldn't go and buy his own plot of land and build his, build his own home. He would add on to the, the family settling. And in that way, there would be multiple generations of families living under the same roof or collection of, of roofs. And this still happens um, still today in, in third world cultures. This is very common to have multiple uh, generations of the same family living under the same roof. So, so he would go off, and, and you guys can just hang out under there for now. Um, he, would, he would go off and he would prepare a place for his bride. And, uh, and while he was gone, she had a role. You see, now she is committed to be married, and, and, uh, and at some point that wedding ceremony is going to happen, and so she would spend the next length of time, because nobody really knew the time or hour when the groom would return, uh, but oftentimes it could be as long as a year. So she would spend that year making herself beautiful for her groom. Now, thankfully, you don't have a lot of work to, to prepare to do that, um, but, but she would spend the year in beauty treatments, continuing to learn how to manage a household. Um, she would perhaps sit under her mom's and, and, and grandma's tutelage on what it means to be a faithful wife and, and what it means to be a mother. Um, but one of the key things that the bride had to do um, is that whenever she went in public, she had to let other people know that she was betrothed. She was spoken for. She'd committed to a man. Um, and and uh, because she was bought with a price, whenever the bride went in public, she would wear a veil. Now, again, I left my wedding veil at home, but I did bring you something you can wear to let us know. Um, this will remind us that you're betrothed. Please, this is important. This isn't a laughing matter. I was wrong. You do have a little, you, you do need some beauty treatments. Um, so uh, you, you can take it off now. That's fine. But, but thanks for playing along. So we're going to have you guys, let's just say you're going to go back to your residence, and that'll be back here on the choir risers. So, so you can go back there. Um, and, and so the bride would, would spend her year, however long it was be, because, again, no one really knew the, the day or the hour when, when the, uh, the, the groom would return for his bride, but she would spend her time preparing herself, making sure that she was ready for the return of the groom. Um, one thing you're going to need here is a candle. And, um, no, not you, the bride. <laughs> Let's set it on flicker. That's cool. So, um, because, no, again, nobody was sure when the groom would return and the bride wanted to make sure she was ready and make sure that there was no case of mistaken identity, she would put a candle in her window. Now, you probably remember the story or, or maybe you've heard the parable that Jesus told, uh, the parable of the virgins. 
And so the idea was that there was a bride-to-be and, and her, her cohort, her gaggle of, of women, of friends, and, and every night they would put a, an oil lamp in their window because they wanted to make, in her window, or in their windows, they wanted to make sure that the groom went to the right place. And as Jesus tells the parable, some of them forgot to put oil in. They didn't prepare for the return of the groom, and it didn't go so well for them. Uh, but one did, and so the groom received her when he came. But uh, the, So the groom has now spent the last, we'll just say, year building onto the family homestead and, and preparing for the wedding ceremony, which is to come. And, and at some point, because only the father of the groom knows when it's really ready, it's ready, and so the father says, Son, go get your bride. Awesome. So now the groom and the groomsmen are um, probably in the middle of the night, is, is how this would usually happen. They would um, head towards the bride's house. So in our lovely village here, the bride's house is up here. So why don't you and your men, um, why don't you head towards the, the, the bride's house? Now, when they, when they got close... The, uh, it was the job of the best man, the, this, is, this is you, it was the job of the best man to announce loudly so the whole village could hear. Behold, the bride's groom comes. Let's try this again. So it was the job of the best man to pronounce loudly so that the whole village could hear. Behold, the bride's groom. <laughs> Do we need to replace you as best man? loudly so the whole village could hear. Behold the... Okay. He says, I don't yell. I suppose that fares well for your future marriage. <laughs> Behold the bridegroom's come. Behold the bridegroom comes. Excellent. And then he would sound a shofar. Have fun with that. That's, that's okay. Uh, it's a ram's horn. It is, it is difficult to play, but that was a valiant effort. Um, um, well played. So behold, the, the bridegroom comes, and uh, the groom looks for the window with the candle in it, finds his bride, I'll take the candle, and whisks her off back to the family homestead. And whisks her off back to the family homestead. Okay, now that's, that's, that's far enough for now. Don't go too far. Um, now this, at this point, is when the celebration Begins because it wouldn't have been a short, like, 30-foot walk from, from bride's home to, to groom's home or their new home to be. I mean, they would have walked through all the villages. And so it was actually the job of the groomsmen and uh, the bridesmaids. We're going to include you in on this um, to get the whole village excited. So we've got a whole village here that needs to be excited about this wedding. I would love it if you would walk up and down the streets of our village and get people excited. Now. Now's the time. Go. Yes, let's get us all excited. This is a big, this is a wedding. There were hardly any other greater celebrations in the village. You can just come down front. Don't sit down here. Wow, that's kind of weak. It was like, yeah, we're excited for 30 seconds. Okay, so the, the groom would bring the bride um, back to the house and and, uh, and now, we're, now we're into the wedding celebration. This is kind of phase two of this whole deal. Now here's the, this is just kind of awkward. Hey, come back on up, wedding party. This is maybe a, maybe a little awkward. But this was how they did it. And so I'm gonna, we're going to be adults in here today. And so what would happen for the first seven days of the wedding ceremony, 
the groom and the bride were, um, they were in the wedding chamber. They, they were alone consummating their marriage for seven days. And during this time, at least when it first started, the, the best man, who doesn't have a loud, boisterous voice, we've gotten that, would stand outside the wedding chamber, outside the hoopah, uh, waiting for confirmation that their marriage had been consummated. And when it was, he had a job, and that was to proclaim so that everyone gathered. By the way, during these seven days where the couple's consummating, there's a party going on, okay? The village is there. They're celebrating. We're talking feast big time. This is what Jews did. Jews celebrate. Um, so at the time after they've consummated, the best man loudly declares, the two have became one. The two have become one. And so everyone knows then it's a deal. They're hitched. They're husband and wife. And then for the remainder of the seven days, the bride and groom stayed uh, in the wedding chamber and began their married life. Now, uh, uh, this part's a little difficult to talk about in our culture, but one of the things they would do is present to the gathered guests evidence that their marriage had been consecrated. And that evidence was the bloody bedsheet on which they had consummated their marriage. Now, this is awkward to talk about, but it's significant when we talk about the marriage relationship. You see, when they would present that bloody bedsheet to, the, to the, the family and friends who had gathered, there was two important reasons they did it. The first of all, the first reason was it demonstrated that the bride was pure, that she had kept herself pure, she had kept her covenant until the night of her marriage. And the second reason was to demonstrate that the marriage covenant into which these two had entered was a blood covenant. Now, the blood covenant throughout all of Scripture is the most powerful and binding covenant known to the Jews. Okay, remember the covenant between God and Abraham back in Genesis? Do you remember how they sealed that covenant? It says that they killed some animals, cut them in half, and Mo, or, uh, Abraham excuse me, walked through the blood. And a lot of the covenants we have in the Old Testament are this blood covenant sealed by blood. Now you'll remember, again, to go back to what we're going to celebrate in a few moments, at the Last Supper, the, the, the supper he had with the disciples before he was ki killed, after supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant sealed in my blood. So this is significant. They, they announce, they demonstrate to those who have gathered to witness the wedding. She kept her covenant until their wedding night. And this covenant is the most sincere covenant we can make because it's a blood covenant. So for seven days, they, they remain in the wedding chamber. Why seven days? Any ideas? Jews are all about symbolism. How many days did it take for God to create? Seven. And when he was done, he called it, no, not just good. He called it very good. And so for Jews, we're going to spend seven days because that's the, uh, there's a symbolic uh, equivalency there. They spent seven days in the wedding chamber. Then they would come out of the wedding chamber and uh, the wedding feast would begin. And for maybe another week or two weeks, uh, there were various factors. Uh, the wedding, or the, the bride and groom, the now husband and wife would celebrate with everyone else who had gathered. And, and, and wine would be free-flowing and food would be free-flowing. It would just be a great celebration that the two have become 
one. Would you give it up for our volunteers here, please? You guys can all be seated. Just keep those. Give them to me later. So the, the Jewish wedding feast was a powerful visual, offered many powerful visuals of the relationship between God and his people, of the relationship we enjoy now as Christians, as the, the, uh, the, the bride of Christ. So we have these words in Song of Solomon. We're going to put them on the screen here. This is from chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. This is the, the female, the, the beloved writing. She says, take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Let the king bring me under his chuppah. She's looking forward to that day when they would be united as husband and wife. This is a picture of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian in Germany uh, at the time that Hitler was expanding his evil reign uh, of Germany, when the, the Third Reich was on the rise. And, and uh, Bonhoeffer absolutely despised what Hitler was doing. He, he saw it for what it was, a real evil. And even when parts of the German church didn't, he did. And he led a, he led a group of churches who were opposed to Hitler. And so for that, Bonhoeffer was thrown in jail. While he was in jail, uh, Bonhoeffer's niece was engaged to be married, and, and uh, he knew that he would not be able to attend the marriage because he was in jail for opposing Hitler. But he wrote a wedding sermon for the wedding. And in that wedding sermon, Bonhoeffer said this, It is not your love that makes the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that makes the love. If you take a minute and think about that, it makes sense. You see, today, wedding couples assume that they meet and fall in love, and then they can get married. And while Bonhoeffer wouldn't, wouldn't indicate that a love before marriage isn't important, he would, he would say that it is. He says there's a much greater reality about marriage, that it's, it's, a, it's not the love that makes the marriage work. It's the marriage, the relentless day-after-day day commitment, blood covenant, if you will, to one another that makes the love work. There's something that happens in the best of marriages where it's not about the feeling we have anymore, but it's about the fact that we've committed that gives us the feeling that makes the love in our marriage. So, so what I'd like to do is I'd like to take what we've seen today, this, uh, this kind of a peek into a Jewish betrothal and wedding ceremony, and I'd like to take some verses from the Song of Solomon. I'd like to help us talk about how we can make love in marriage, how we can make it work so that it lasts, so that it reflects what God intended it to be. And the first thing I would, I would say is that uh, we need to make love exclusive. Notice what chapter 6, verse 3 says, I am my lover, lovers, and my lover is mine. So let me ask you a question. Go back to this wedding ceremony that we just saw uh, acted out before us. When the groom brought the bride into the wedding chamber, who else was in there with them as they consummated their marriage? Yeah, nobody. Nobody. 
This is God's design for marriage. What happens under the hoopah stays under the hoopah. The relationship that a husband and wife have, the perks of marriage are meant only for that husband and that wife together with one another. As a matter of fact, Paul talks about it like this. He, he says, when a man and wife come together, they give themselves to each other in such a way that the husband's sexuality becomes the wife and the wife's body or sexuality becomes the husband. They, they share these things. And so if we're going to have a marriage that reflects what God has designed it to be and that goes the distance, that thrives, it has to be exclusive. We cannot share the rights and privileges of marriage with any other person. What happens under the hoopah stays under the hoopah. This is what makes flirting by married couples with someone other than their spouse, so dangerous. You see, what you intend to be harmless fun, someone else can interpret as, hey, my hoopah's banquet, join me. You give away something that isn't yours to give away. Not only do you give away something of yours when you're involved in any kind of physical or sexual affair, but you give away something of your spouse's. You give open access to something of your spouse's because his or hers has become yours, just like yours has become theirs. And you allow someone else access. You make it inclusive when it's to be exclusive. Most of us get that. I see a lot of heads nodding. Absolutely. What happens under the hoopah stays under the hoopah. We have, we have no problems understanding that and, and agreeing with that when it comes to our, our body and our sexuality. But I would suggest there's another principle here. Um, maybe let's say it like this. Men, nobody needs to know what your wife looks like before she's had her first, I don't know, 12 cups of coffee. That's for you, not for anyone else. And um, wives, no one needs to know that he leaves his socks and dirty underwear on the floor and doesn't make it. That's for you. That, that's under the hoopah. That's part of your relationship. That's what makes your relationship special. Don't share it. Don't share it outside of your marriage. You see, there's some things that are meant only for a husband and wife to know. There's some things that make the relationship special, that set it apart from all the other relationships you have. Keep those things to yourself. Allow those things to be the ones that make your relationship special. And share with one another what you won't share with, with anyone else. Men, she needs to know your fears so that she can help you face them. And women, he needs to know your insecurities so that he can help you secure them. But, but no one else needs to know that stuff. That's for the two of you to know. That's what makes your relationship special. If we're going to make love the way that God designs and intends, we've got to make it exclusive. And not only do we need to make love exclusive, exclusive but we need to make it expressive. Now, how many of you have ever, um, maybe you've been this couple, but if not, you've probably seen it. You've been in a restaurant, and you see a, a couple come in. They may be a young couple, middle-aged, old couple, doesn't really matter. Uh, they come in, you, and you watch them, and they get their seat, and they sit, and they order their food, and, and the server brings their food, and they eat their food, and they pay their bill, and they get up, and they leave. And, and like the whole time, they said three words to each other. Have you ever seen anything like that? And on the one hand, it's like, oh, that's so cute. They know each other so well, they don't need to talk. 
And on the other hand, it's so sad because that's not what marriage is. Marriage is about communication, and not just communication, but expressive communication. Now, anyone who's been through any kind of counseling or read any kind of books on marriage has heard ad nauseum that women in general speak two to three more times words, the number of words in the day that men do. Can anybody, do I get an amen that that's true? Is that your experience? Okay. Our experience, too, which is ironic since all I'm doing is talking right now. Um, But by the end of the day, she'll far surpass me. I'm not saying it's bad. So men, just shut your mouth when you're ahead. But here's the deal. It's not just communication that marriage needs. It's expressive communication. Men, for us, this means that our wife needs us not just to say more words to her, but to communicate to her what's in our heart, how we feel about her. Now, for a lot of guys I know, including me, this is difficult. I mean, I wasn't blessed with the gift of poetic communication. Can I get an amen? I, I, I have a difficult time putting into words how I feel about, uh, about my wife. I mean, I can say I love you, um, but it, it needs to be expressive. Notice this verse from, uh, from Song of Solomon. Chapter 4, verse 9. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes. Now, if Solomon was like most of we men, that verse would say, hey, babe, you got nice eyes. And we'd be like, yeah, man, that's expressive. And our wives would be like, "Uh, try again. Try again, bub. Okay, now, now Solomon was wise. In another place, he said, he said it's something else which I really like, and, and that's that there's nothing new under the sun. And so, men, if you're not gifted with poetic, expressive communication, that is King Solomon's permission to you to borrow it from someone else. If you hear it and it describes how you feel, share it with your wife. Okay? Trust me, it works. Um, so I'm a pastor, you guys get that, uh, which means that I have the privilege of doing, of being at more weddings than the average male. And uh, the more I do weddings, the more I begin to realize that there's a lot of really good love poetry out there, oftentimes accompanied by music. So the last couple years as I've done weddings, one of the songs that's been really popular uh, is the song by John Legend, All of You. The chorus says this, all of me, loves all of you, love your curves and all your edges, all your perfect imperfections. I'll give you all of me, you give me all of you, even when I lose, I'm winning, you're my end and my beginning, because I give you all of me, and you give me all of you. I probably heard that song several times before I really heard that song. But when I finally understood what the chorus was saying, it hit me like a ton of bricks. This is how I feel about Sarah. Like, I love every part of who she is. Uh, and, and even her imperfections, there's a sense in which they're perfect. And I thought, I got I to find a way to tell this to Sarah. A few weeks later, I was doing some shopping, and I saw a, a little wooden plaque, and it said, All of me loves all of you. And just like that, those words came rushing back. And I said, that's it. And so I got that plaque. I had it personalized. And I gave it to Sarah for Christmas. This was this most recent Christmas. 
And, um, and so I, I held it. I knew which one it was, and, and I was just waiting. I thought, man, she's going to open this present, and there's going to be no more presents. We're going to enter our hoopah. The kids can play with their toys, and this is going to be fantastic. And she opened it, and she took it out, and, and the kids are like, what is it, Mommy? What is it? And she read it, all of you, loves all of me, Earl and Sarah, 5 day 98. She looked at me, and she said, thank you, and she put it back in the box, and it disappeared. And for several months, a couple months anyways, I was like, nuts on this. I can talk more, but I'm not doing this expressive thing anymore. That didn't work. Five weeks ago, uh, five Sundays ago, by the way, was the first sermon in this series. And so on Saturday night, before the Sunday that I was starting this series, uh, I was at home with the kids and, and the family were all in the living room. And, and uh, if, you don't, if you didn't grow up in a preacher's house, you don't get this. But we were going over Dad's sermon. That's kind of like the highlight of Saturday night. And, uh, and for that sermon, you may remember we played a little game. Uh, it was called Love Lyrics or Song of Solomon. Do you remember this? And so we'd put some lyrics up, and you'd have to guess, is that from the Bible or is that from some love song? And so as we were doing that, the kids wanted to hear the songs the lyrics had come from because they didn't know most of the songs. And so when we got to, to John Legend's All of Me, which was in that quiz, uh, I, I pulled up my computer and started playing it. And so it's playing, and, and really my family had never heard it before, and, and it comes to the chorus. And, and he starts singing, all of me loves all of you. Love your curves and all your edges. And I look across the living room and Sarah's sitting on the couch. Tears. I mean, just. She's bawling like a crazy woman. And that's when I went, oh, yeah, baby, jackpot. <laughs> jackpot, baby. And, uh, and so now this picture hangs in our bedroom. She looks at it every morning when she gets up. Okay. The point is our love has to be expressive. We have to be able to communicate to each other how we really feel. And then that's not just for you. Women, you're not off the hook. You see, you may speak twice as much as your husband does, but when you talk to your husband, it's not more words than he needs. You see, your husband, especially if he's in the workforce, he has people talking to him all day, maybe yelling at him, maybe screaming at him, expressing their displeasure with the mistakes he's made. He doesn't need more words from you. He needs you to speak to the deepest place of his heart. Of his heart. And one of the best things you can do, women, because I, I continue to believe that most men, if they're to be honest and vulnerable, deep down they feel like they don't know if they can cut it. They don't, know, like, they, don't, they don't know if they can match up. And what your husband needs from you, women, is for you to tell him over and over and over again that you're proud of him. That you see the relationship he has with your kids. That you know how hard he works that you appreciate the things he tries that are out of his comfort zone. You need to tell him over and over again, honey, I am proud of you. I am so glad you're my husband, and I would choose you over 10,000 any day of the week and twice on Sunday. And you need to do it not just to him, but to other people when he's around and in front of other people. Talk to the kids. Say to the kids, you know what? Your daddy is the best mechanic or accountant or, or, or line worker or doctor or teacher in all of Elkhart County, and I'm so glad that I married him. I'm so glad he's your dad. If you can marry a husband half the man of your dad, you'll have a great man. Women, your love needs to be expressive. If we're going to have marriages that go the distance and thrive and reflect what God's wanted to be, we've got to make love expressive. We've got to make it... Uh, exclusive, and we've got to make it, make it exemplary. 
Notice this verse from Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy, unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. There's a little hidden gem in this verse that we don't see in the English. It's the underlying words right there at the end of verse 6. Like a mighty flame. In Hebrew, that is all one word. And if we were to translate it literally, we would translate it flame of Yahweh or flame of God. There's a lot of ways we could go with that. But I would suggest to you that one of the most important things about the love between a man and a wife is like the flame of God. The flame of God, we've already talked about it, shows up all over the Old Testament. It shows up when he leads the people out of Egypt towards the promised land. A pillar of fire by night so that they can see where they're going. I would suggest to you that our marriages need to be like the flame of God. In a culture that's dark, in a culture where marriages end faster than they start, Christian marriages ought to be the ones shining light on what it really means to have a lifelong commitment. We ought to be the ones setting the example and the pace and the tone. And, and our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers ought to look at our relationship with our spouse, ought to look at our Christian marriage and say, I don't know how you do it, but I want a marriage like that. Our marriages have to be examples. This is what God created them to be. Not only does the flame show up, though, when God leads the people, but the flame shows up on the altar. Key to the Jewish religious system was these sacrifices that they would make often seeking forgiveness. And the person who brought the sacrifice would know they were forgiven when the flame consumed the sacrifice on the altar. And so I would suggest to you today that if our marriages are going to be like a mighty flame, like the flame, the fire of God, then our marriages have to be a place where forgiveness is real. Listen, Your marriage, above any other relationship in your life, has to be a place where every wrong is forgiven and forgivable. Not just the day-to-day friction of, of careless words and actions, but the life-altering, marriage-ending sin that sometimes happens between a husband and wife. If that can't be forgiven in a Christian marriage, then I would suggest the marriage we have isn't Christian. Our love has to be an example. And there's no more powerful institution, relationship on the face of the earth to demonstrate to a a world that's unforgivable and unforgiving what it means to have a heavenly father who knows everything we've ever done and how wicked and despicable it is and can still look at us and say, I forgive you and I love you and you're my child and you're my bride forever. If our marriages aren't that example, the world is not going to see it anywhere. It's not going to happen. We've watched today uh, a Jewish betrothal ceremony, and uh, we've gotten a glimpse into what it means to be married in a Jewish community. And we've seen throughout that that this relationship we have with Christ, as we're called the bride of Christ, uh, overlaps it at many points. And so what we'd like to do today is to respond to God's word by receiving communion. As we receive communion today, I want want to remind you again of what Jesus said when he stood at the end of supper and he took the cup and he said, this cup 
is a new covenant sealed in my blood. Whenever you drink this, remember me. So we're going to invite you today in a few moments to come and receive communion. We're not going to pass it. We're going to invite you to come and take the elements. We've got uh, elements here on both sides, on the left and the right. And you can come and take the bread and take the juice. And we're going to ask you to, to take those elements and then do one of two things. Either return to your seat and when you're ready, go ahead and eat the bread and drink the cup. We're not going to wait and do that all together. So option A would be to go back to your seats and, and receive communion. Or option B, um, we would invite you to come and stand under our own little hoopah here. I want you to envision what kind of powerful message this can be as perhaps husband and wives come and bring their communion elements and stand under here and recommit themselves not only to each other, but to their eternal groom. I want you to picture how powerful it can be for, for singles, whether you're not yet married or you're no longer married, for you to receive the communion elements at one of the tables and to come and stand under here and, and commit yourself again to your eternal groom, to the one who promised never to leave you, never to forsake you, to be, to be the spouse on the spouseless days. I'm going to ask you when you're ready to receive communion to come, through the, come by the outside aisles, come and receive your elements, and then either come under the hoopah or go back to your seat using the three center aisles so we can keep traffic moving. And uh, if you'd like to stand under the hoopah, you're welcome to receive your elements and, and then stand here and pray together or, or worship or do whatever you'd like as long as you want. Um, Jim's going Jim's gonna to play as we do this, and there'll be plenty of music for us to take the time we need recommitting to each other and to our eternal groom, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray to get us started. I'd ask if you'd bow with me, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the pictures from your word that remind us that our relationship with you is not an ordinary relationship, that you've called us your beloved. You've called us the bride of Christ. You've asked us to busy ourselves, making ourselves ready for your return, making sure that we're holy and pure and, and ready for our groom to come. And Lord, we look forward to the day when, when the bridegroom will come and we'll hear the Father announce with the sound of the trumpet, behold, the bridegroom comes. And Lord, until that day, we continue to remember your sacrifice. And so today as we take the bread and drink the cup, we ask that your covenant would be renewed, that your blood would be shed anew in our hearts, and that we would be more committed to our eternal groom, that we'd remain steadfast, and that you'd renew any marriage relationships here that need to be renewed. Father, we love you and we thank you for the gift of your son. Amen. Love is not a place to come and go as we please. It's a house we enter in, then commit to never leave. So lock the door behind you, throw away the key, and work it out together. Let it bring us to our knees. Love is a shelter in a raging storm. 
Something worth fighting for 